Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome in Jesus' name. I want to ease into this text by telling you a story uh, that came out of my first year apologetics class when I was in seminary about 100 years ago. Um, a man that was lecturing uh, put on the board one of the, the dicta, you might say, of the modern era. If you're thinking uh, classic, romantic, modern, postmodern, in the broad sweep of history, uh, he wrote on the board the modern dictum, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And some of you are old enough to have heard that, perhaps, in school. And um, he then said, where are we today? And I would say we're still there, so to speak, even though it's been about 50 years. And he said, what, do you, what happens? And he just took a big X and marked through the word knowledge. So what are you left with? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Power. Power. We live in a day and age in which, by and large, people say there's no absolute truth. There's nothing that is known or can really be known in a full stop all capital sense of the word known. And so, in many areas of life, what we're left with today is power. Power. Knowledge is impossible, so whoever can get power can therefore control things. In the text that I'm going to read in a minute, and in the particular verse we're going to look at, Jesus says of the scribes, you have taken away the key of knowledge. What does that mean? And why is it important for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's pray and have a look. Father, uh, thank you for this word, which by the illuminating ministry of the Spirit can become a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that the same Spirit that inspired these words will now illuminate them to our understanding and apply them to our hearts and transform our lives. Lord, the Scriptures tell us that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and we confess to you that as believers in Christ, some days that's very, very hard to see. But we take it by faith and pray that this looking at your word, hearing it read and proclaimed, will be a part of that transformative process. And also, Father, I pray that you use a wretched and sinful and crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 11 at verse 37, last time I'm going to read this text. Um, Luke 11 at verse 37, while Jesus was preaching, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
but give us as alms those things, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to the Pharisees, to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people down with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, and this is the text for this morning. Woe to you lawyers, for if you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and ever. And every jot and every tittle of the word of God will be accomplished because the God who spoke it will make it happen. So, if you had happened to be at my house on my 70th birthday party a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a, a crowd of size there, and I gathered the group together before we began, and I said, well, welcome. We're glad most of you are here. <laughs> and uh, I like to throw that kind of thing out from time to time, uh, just to make people wonder, what's this old guy's meaning? I think, uh, I think they would have said, the, the people that hosted these dinner parties, we're looking at the dinner party dialogues, I think the people that hosted these things would have said after a while, I'm glad some of you people are here, uh, but maybe not Jesus, because he always blew the party up. So they've shifted gears here uh, to the the lawyers. Who are these lawyers? And in a word, they're the scribes. They're the one, you're more familiar with that word. The two words can be used interchangeably. They're a a distinct group from the Pharisees, but there's overlap. If you think in terms of Venn diagrams, and most normal people don't, I don't think, but if you think in terms of Venn diagrams, there was overlap between the two groups. They were separate and distinct, but some were in both categories. They were experts in the study of the law of Moses. Uh, They were to give undistracted study to the law so that they could then teach the law. They had three chief functions. To, by copying and oral transmission, they were to keep the law for the people in the sense of not obey it, but 
teach it and understand it. It led to heartless formalism in many cases. Uh, They lectured in the temple. They were honored. They attracted students. And they were entrusted with the administration of the law as judges in the Sanhedrin. They were a reform movement, but they did not reform the nation. They thought, if you had asked them, what are you people about? Well, we're, we're to bring light to the people. We're trying to help the people. They thought they conveyed the truth to the people. But Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't help, you hinder. You keep the truth. You keep knowledge, real knowledge, saving knowledge. You keep it from the people. You, you hinder, you don't help. And you're leading the people into spiritual darkness. No wonder Jesus pronounced a woe on them because they were not the genuine item. Let's look first at the knowledge that the scribes took away. It says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. Keys open things, right? Keys open things. When you go home today, some of you will put a key in the lock to open the door and to go in. As a matter of fact, this text, verse 52, toward the end, talks about entering twice. It uses the word entering. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So this key is something that opens, and it's a key of knowledge. And there are two possibilities of what this might mean grammatically. It could be the key that consists in knowledge or the key that leads to knowledge. If it's the former, it consists in knowledge, it would mean that they took real knowledge from the people. Truth was taken away, not given. And if that's what it means, it's a very serious charge because these are people that are to know the truth and convey the truth. And if they're not doing that, if if they're taking the truth away, That's a very serious thing. And frankly, there are people like that today, just as there were then, who claim to be imparting the truth to real life, to real salvation. And Jesus would say unto them, I think, woe, woe upon you. If it's the key that leads to knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of salvation then there's something or someone who leads to knowledge and has been taken away from the people by the very group that is supposed to be giving them that knowledge. In this sense, it would be like a computer password, right? So if you have the password, you can get into the computer and get into the files and, and, and get into the documents and you can learn things. And so if this key, if this is the key that leads to knowledge, it's like a password that they should be giving to the people and they're not giving to the people. Which is it? Well, I think in the context, Jesus intends both meanings. I don't know which one would be better grammatically, but I think he intends both meanings. There's a key that both consists in knowledge and a key that leads to knowledge. What is the key to? What does it open? I believe it's very clear in the Scriptures that it is the kingdom of God. In a parallel passage in Matthew 23, Jesus says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. In Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I think it's clear that the keys here 
are the keys to the kingdom of God, of entry to the kingdom of God. You have taken away, says Jesus, the key of knowledge. Now, God's spokesman, any person that stands in this pulpit or any pulpit where it's, where it's said that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, that person ought to be giving the keys, has the keys to the kingdom and ought to be speaking for the God who called them there, words of truth about entrance into the king, into the kingdom of the king. Words of how to come in, how to stay in. That's the job of all who would claim to speak for God. I don't care what church, what denomination, what cult, what group, if they claim to be speaking for God, the only thing they have to say is how to get into the kingdom of God, and the key, of course, is Jesus. Anything else won't do, and we'll see why. A second lesson from this is that the kingdom of God was a present reality then as it is now. It has come, it's here, entrance is possible into the kingdom of God today. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of the kingdom. You say, doesn't that happen when I die? No, it happens when you first, when you believe. When you believe in Jesus Christ and are adopted into the family of God and written into the will of God, born again to a living hope, you enter and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom is yet coming in its fullness and finality. Yes, when Christ comes again. But when the king comes, the kingdom comes, and the king has come to usher in his kingdom, and you can enter it today if you have not already. That's good news. That's good, good news. And you can have the resources of the king and the kingdom and begin to absorb kingdom values and have transformation into the character of a citizen of this kingdom. Jesus is the key. What did they do with the key? They took it away. Look at it. Look at it. Isn't that horrible? These people that are supposed to be experts in the Old Testament law, you have taken away the key of knowledge. The kingdom was present. It was visible because the king was present and visible. And now it's gone, it's hidden because of what the scribes did and did not do. It's kind of a form of cruelty, isn't it? Isn't that a form of cruelty? I mean, if, if I had a drug that would heal every person in every ICU and every hospital bed of COVID, and I wouldn't use it, it would be cruel. It would be cruel. They are cruel. They should have the key to knowledge. And the people languish. How did they take this key of knowledge away? First, how they took it away from themselves, and then how they took it away from others. And they, they're taking it from the cell, themselves had, had a kind of a two-stage problem. I'll, I'll do the secondary problem first, and then the primary problem they had. They had a faulty understanding of the Old Testament. Right? Yes, they had a faulty understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught that the Messiah would, be, would suffer, 
that the Messiah was a servant. You look at Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, uh, Isaiah 53, and other places from Isaiah 40 on, it talks about the coming servant of the Lord. And, and the servant of the Lord would be a suffering servant. They should have seen that. They read it. They wrote it. They talked about it. But they didn't see that the Messiah must suffer. They expected a political, revolutionary, liberating leader to free them from the dominion of the Roman Empire. Instead, they got Jesus hanging on a cross, bled out. This can't be the Messiah. They had a a faulty understanding of who the Messiah would be. And then their primary problem led from the secondary problem, and that is they failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't believe him. They rejected him. They finally crucified him. Listen to what the book of Colossians says about Jesus, uh, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I probably should have said earlier in this sermon, but in those days, knowledge was not the kind of thing that most of us think when we think of knowledge, uh, nor was wisdom. Uh, Growing out of the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle era, 400 years before Christ and into this era, if you said, what is knowledge? They would have said, well, it's what you need to know how to live. If you had knowledge, you knew how to live. If you had wisdom, you knew how to live. They might have used wisdom and knowledge somewhat interchangeably. We think of knowledge as something you could repeat on a test in a classroom. We think of knowledge that might be in a book or five up on your shelf somewhere. Their view of knowledge was more practical Uh, more practical. You knew how to live life if you had knowledge. The mystery of God is Christ, says Colossians 2, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the Bible, a mystery, um, the mystery of God is Christ. Christ is known as the mystery of God. What does it mean by mystery? Well, a mystery was something in, again, this is the, the Bible's use of the word. A mystery was something you couldn't figure out on your own. Something you could not figure out with unaided human reason. So uh, what would something be like that? Well, that Jesus is both God and man. Well, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, that's kind of what mystery means. It's, it's the kind of thing, well, I couldn't have made that up. I couldn't have thought that up. Uh, that God would become man. Um, that Jesus would die on the cross. You, who, who thought that up? Nobody thought that up. It's revealed. Mysteries have to be revealed. There may be things we can figure out on our own, but, but unaided human reason is very limited, and the mysteries of God are things that unaided human reason cannot figure out. Once these mysteries are revealed, this mystery then becomes the key to knowing more about God and knowing more from God. Right? So once you know Jesus and you begin to understand who he is and what he did and what he taught, then more about how to live life becomes, becomes very clear. John 14 says, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. So in an important sense, if we're to have that which is real life, if, we're know how, know how to, if we are to know how to really live life, we've got to be connected to Jesus by repentance and faith. If we're to have truth and knowledge, we must first have Jesus. If we don't really know how to live, we've got to have Jesus. In that same chapter, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, you can't make that stuff up. Jesus would say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father? Man, I couldn't have thought that up. So both knowledge of God and knowledge of salvation come via Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes rejected him. They rejected him for themselves, and they kept others from seeing him because of their faulty teaching. They didn't understand the Old Testament. I don't think they understood what we call uh, the perspicuity of Scripture. Um, uh, something that's perspicuous can be seen. And the perspicuity of Scripture says all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due sense of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Well, if that's true, if that's true, that scriptures are clear even to the unlearned, what was wrong with the scribes and their understanding of the Old Testament? J. Gresham Machen, in fighting the liberalism of the earliest, earliest 20th century, said, spoke of a fundamental lack of spiritual endowment. What he meant was they don't have the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to see these things, Holy Spirit to understand these things. You know what they said about Jesus? He, he, this is, uh, I'm not going to take it every scripture, but at one or another time, the scribes said about Jesus, he has a demon. He's demon possessed. At other times, they said he's a blasphemer. At other times, they called him a bastard. They said, we know who our father is. Implication, you don't know who your father is, buddy. Who are you to lecture us? They called him a demon. They called him a blasphemer. They called him a bastard. They called him a Galilean. And these are the teachers of the Jews. You say, do people make mistakes like that today? Friends, they do. Francis Schaeffer said, when people disagree about what the Bible is. That it is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. If somebody denies that, their thoughts and teaching might go anywhere. He was right. And you can see it in books that are on your shelves and mine. So, my first point, which you'll be glad to know is my longest point, is that they took away the key of knowledge. They took away Jesus. And then, secondly, the entrance the scribes did not make, which, as I've said, is the entrance into the kingdom of God. Because they rejected the king, they missed the kingdom. 
If you're going to live in a kingdom, you've got to know the king, be accepted by the king, welcomed by the king, be on good terms with the king, because the king rules in his realm. He allows in and he shuts out. And Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he is the king of the universe. He is the king, full stop, king, all caps, king. And the good news is that he welcomes newcomers into his kingdom, even hypocrites like me and you and them, if they would have repented. We must repent, we must believe and entrust ourselves to him. But he earnestly desires newcomers in his kingdom. He welcomes them with open arms, come unto me, he said. His kingdom is large, there's room for you. His kingdom is good. There's blessing beyond what you could ask, think, or imagine because the king is benevolent. He will forgive and he will forget. So we know, I think, now more about what hypocrisy really is. They claim to know the way to heaven, teach the way to heaven, guard the way to heaven, and to be going there themselves. And they're not. It's still the same. Paul said, anybody who teaches a gospel other than the gospel I taught to you, he said this to the Galatians, let them be anathema. Anybody that says there's a way other to God in, in heaven other than through Jesus Christ is wrong. I got an email from somebody once and said, I'm not so sure about this, you know, exclusivity of Christianity and and." And, and, and making dogmatic statements about my way is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why, why did he say that? Was, an e, was he an egomaniac? Well, what's the problem? What separates God and, and creatures that are sinful? And the answer is easy. It's sin. What other way to handle sin is there than the blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ lived out for His people and then imputed to His people and ultimately imparted to His people, what way is there? And, and there are people still out there that if, if Jesus were alive today, I think He would be pronouncing woes and calling people out still. I mean, when, 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 when um, I'm reading through Timothy right now in my personal Bible reading time, and I was, I was stricken again um, earlier in the week as I read this, right at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Right at the beginning. Um, you know, it's not, there's none of this, you've got to be positive all the time, Timothy, or you won't get a hearing. Here's what he says. I, I, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Well, this is a few decades after Jesus spoke, and it seems things haven't changed a bit. Friend, they haven't changed even today. 
It's still the same. Just because somebody says they have the truth, it doesn't mean they do. Thirdly, the hindrance that they were. They not only did not help, but they hindered. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What is it to hinder? The, the, the original word here means to restrain or prevent. Um, and there are good hindrances or good restrainings and bad restrainings, right? Like if a child uh, is getting too close to a fire and you restrain the child, uh, that's a good thing. Um, if you lock the child in the closet and don't give them food, that's a bad thing. Well, when Jesus, at one point in his ministry in Luke 18, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Same word, do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And the clear implication that Jesus is giving here and there is that people wanted to come into the kingdom were trying with all they knew to do to get into the kingdom. They went to the experts and said, how do I get into the kingdom? And the experts hindered them. The experts hindered them. Jesus at one point said, it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea than to have that happen. Look at this passage uh, that Mary read. Wasn't it Mary? You read, right? Yeah. Um, um, in John 7 about the man born blind. This really stirred it up because Jesus did this on the Lord's Day when the scribes and Pharisees said that he should not do miracles. So he, he, the man born blind, it ends uh, at where it says, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And so they said, how'd you get to where you can see? And he said, Jesus did it. And they didn't like that. And so they said, um, let's call his parents and ask them. And they said, well, we don't know how it happened, but, um, but we know he was born blind. I'm, I'm telling you what's further in the text. You can read it this afternoon after your nap. But, but we know he was born blind, and we know now he sees, and he's of legal age. You go ask him. Now, why did they do that? Because it says very clearly in the text, in verse 22, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They hindered. They hindered. They positively hindered people coming to Jesus Christ. So they brought the boy back and they asked him, how did you come to see? And he said, it was Jesus. And then in verse 34, it says, they cast him out of the synagogue. They cast him out. They wouldn't have any of it. They said very clearly, if you believe in Jesus, you cannot be in a right standing with God. Wow. Who would do that sort of thing? Well, the easy target first, okay? A liberal professing Christian who sneers at the phrase born again. There are people that sneer at the phrase born again. 
Jesus said, if you're not born again, you can't get to heaven. John 3, pretty clear, very straight up. Maybe the phrase has been misused, but I sure wouldn't sneer at it. Tom Gibbs, the new president at um, Covenant Seminary, decades ago, when he got out of Auburn University, he came and worked on our, our staff in Faith Church Birmingham as a youth director for two years before he we went to Covenant Seminary. And Tom came to me after about six months, very perceptive. He'd been working with kids in the church and out of the church, uh, many of whom were in a Christian school locally. He said, Alan, I figured something out here. Uh, what is it? He was actually bouncing it off me, and I told him, yeah, I think you're right. He said, most of these parents at this Christian school want their kids to have just enough Jesus to not get pregnant or not get anybody pregnant and stay off of drugs. But if their kids got really serious about Jesus, he said it would scare the willies out of them. And they would hinder it. I said, Tom, I think you're right. That's a little bit different, but it's the kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing some people that are tottering on the brink of, of making a commitment to Christ and, and they think, you know, if I really got serious about Jesus, if I really gave it all over to Jesus, He'd mess my life up. <laughs> you got to laugh, cuss, or cry, right? I mean, you find out what life is when you follow Jesus. And what you're trying to protect, if you say, well, I don't want to get too serious about Jesus, because it'll mess my life up. You don't know what life is, friend. You don't know what life is. You don't know what knowledge and wisdom, how to live, are. Let us dread discouraging others, hindering others, who have a real interest in or zeal for Jesus Christ and concern for their souls. The consequences for those who have the zeal can be very dire. The consequences for those who do the hindering can be very dire. Luke 17, those, those things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. The woes against the scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees are based on their many hypocrisies. And they are hypocritical here in that they claim to have knowledge of God and be bound for heaven, and they're really ignorant of God, and they're bound for hell, and they're blind to it. And in a great malfeasance in office, they taught others to reject Jesus like they did. So the real question is, do I know Jesus? And it's important because if I have Jesus, I won't give you all the text on this, but if you don't believe me, come and I'll, I'll help you find them. It won't take long. To have Jesus is to have the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And the door to the kingdom is Jesus himself. And the door is open. It won't always be open, but it's open. 
How long will it be open? Until you die or Jesus comes back? I don't know the answer to either of those questions. When will I die? When will Jesus come back? So now's a good time. Given the uncertainty, given the brevity of life, now is a good time. Jesus came and he calls and he welcomes with open arms. Let us pray. Lord our God, uh, forgive us that we're so much like the Pharisees. Uh, that on our best day, we're hypocrites. On our worst days, we're awful hypocrites. And that's because we're tending to want to build our own righteousness. Forgive us of that. Help us to embrace Christ in faith, not only what he did on the cross, but what he did in his sinless life before he got there. So that all we need would be known by us and applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Father, if there are any in this room that are strangers to these things, that do not understand these things, I pray that you would give them the light of life to see clearly who you are and that Jesus is the key, or as he said in one place, he is the door. And We pray in his name. Amen.